This episode of On Comedy Writing is brought to you by Amazon Cloud Cam Indoor Security Camera. That's right. That's the Amazon Cloud Cam Indoor Security Camera. Stay connected 24-7. You can catch activities as they happen in 1080p full HD. Watch, download, and share the last 24 hours emotion alert video clips for free. In the last 24 hours, you had your, your baby with the babysitter. And guess what? That babysitter fed your baby a ring pop. Wouldn't you want to know? Well, you can get notifications. Get notified when it CloudCam sees activity and use the CloudCam app to check in anytime with live view. Watch motion alert clips in the app or on the web with your Amazon Drive account. You can always see the babysitter feed your baby a dang ring pop. See clearly in the dark. Night vision lets you detect what's happening around the clock. Turn on or off the night vision LEDs in the CloudCam app. It's midnight. You've been gone for days. You turn on your Amazon uh, CloudCam. You finally see it. The babysitter fed the dang baby a dang ring pop. Two-way audio. Check in with the family or tell your dog to stop barking. Or tell the babysitter to stop feeding the baby the dang ring pop. 30-day free trial of any CloudCam subscription. Get intelligent alerts and advanced features like person detection, zones, see up to 30 days of video history, and if your babysitter is feeding your baby a ring pop. Works with Alexa. Just ask Alexa to show your live feed on your Amazon Fire TV, Fire Tablet, Echo Show, or Echo Spot. You're reading a George Saunders book, and all of a sudden you get a notification, the babysitter's feeding the baby a ring pop. CloudCam's intelligence lives in the cloud, so it's always getting smarter with more advanced alerts, detection, and features. Just announced, the CloudCam app offers more notification features and gives customers more control to turn off audio playback or turn on and off LEDs. You're watching your babysitter feed your baby a ring pop. You can't bear to hear her say, oh, here comes the ring pop, little baby. Turn off the audio. For Amazon Key, purchase the Amazon Key in-home kit, which includes CloudCam Key Edition. You need CloudCam Key Edition that features a Key Edition power cable to enable Amazon Key. Folks, I don't know what that means. But get your Amazon CloudCam. To get it, go to boardwalkaudio.com slash cloudcam. That's boardwalkaudio.com slash cloudcam. Never not know when your babysitter's feeding your baby a ring pop. This is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. On comedy writing, on comedy writing. Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast about the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson. We've got a great episode, but first, the best way to support this show is by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash oncomedywriting. Click the Support Our Artist button and shop on Amazon like you normally would. We get a little kickback. This was another episode recorded in Los Angeles at my buddy Will Dwyer's place. Will has a great podcast called Casting Session, which you should definitely check out. It's really funny. Our guest this week is Andy Bobro. He's written on shows like Malcolm in the Middle, Community, Last Man on Earth, and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. This is a long episode, but it's full of really interesting information. Andy worked in advertising for like 15 years before even getting involved with comedy, which is really fascinating to me. And he also talks a lot about business stuff, like what's an overall deal, and even throws out a lot of actual uh, figures, which I always find really informative. So strap in. It's a long one, but it's well worth listening to. It's probably the best episode about the business, which is half of this podcast is business and craft. Uh, if you like this episode, check out our other episodes with Neil Campbell and David Phillips from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, or the episode with Chris Kula, who also worked on Community. So here is Andy Bobro. Uh, Andy, thanks for coming on the show. 
hey, it's, it's really fun to be here. <laughs> uh, where are you from originally? I'm from uh, Detroit, suburbs of Detroit. When I tell people Detroit, they get a certain image in their mind, so I always add suburbs. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> north of Eight Mile. Okay. Uh, <laughs> N- not the stuff that's depicted in movies. Right, in Eight Mile. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Uh, when did you first like get into comedy, like watching comedy and stuff? D- um very early uh you know uh i've uh my my team of therapists has has uh uncovered the all the reasons why i am the way i am but it has a lot to do with the fact that i was the youngest of three boys uh and um uh i, I was uh, i think well i mean i don't know if it, i was i i guess i was just sort of looking for a way to distinguish myself in a in a family where uh, there was a lot of sort of male sparring up above me, mm. uh, my two brothers would would fight and do sort of typical um, t- uh, uh, fighting for uh, dominance. And uh, my dad had a real wasn't a, a bad guy at all, but had a very big personality. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was the clown. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I just really gravitated to, um, uh. God, I mean, early stuff was maybe like uh, George Carlin because that was so subversive, um, and uh, really Monty Python. Oh, uh, Bill Cosby when I was younger, listening to Bill Cosby records and listening to George Carlin records, and then and memorizing them like all of us, and then you know Steve Martin when I got a little older. So you know it's like, and then uh, Monty Python was a huge one. Me and my friends when I was in maybe seventh or eighth grade. Uh, I had a few friends who I bet for my entire middle school, I only communicated by quoting Monty Python to my <laughs> friends. Uh, we were the most obnoxious people yeah. because we couldn't have a conversation with anyone. We would just do Monty Python bits. <laughs> would you? Yeah. Uh, were you like a class clown? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, uh, 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 certainly. Uh, I guess you'd have to ask my classmates, but I, <laughs> I usually held that title. There were. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think. It, 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 yes, I was consi- I was the class clown uh, throughout grade school, middle school, and uh, in high school. There were a couple other funny guys, uh, but I was certainly in that. I was in the uh, in the trio of class clowns. Were you doing like any like uh, like comedy performing or anything or writing or anything in, during that time? I yes. Um, uh, in high school, I went to go visit my. Uh, I had a cousin who lived in New York City, and he was like the city kid, and I was like the the kid from the the Midwest, and he his life seemed so much more sophisticated than mine, and and he showed me, I think maybe it was in ninth grade or tenth grade, he showed me that he and his friends had created a zine, oh, um, that was like you know pre internet obviously, um, and uh, uh, yeah, they made a little like uh, it was. Uh, you know, take eight and a half by 11 pages and, and take five or six of them and fold them in half and you've, and you've got yourself a, a magazine and they would go to uh, the print shop and, and print them up and distribute them in their school. And he had a friend who was, they had a lot of artwork. It was just a, it was a satire. It was like a, it was a making fun of his teachers, mm-hmm. making fun of other students. And I, my head exploded when I saw it. And I went back uh, after that visit and I went to my friends and I said, we have to do this. I showed them the yeah. thing that my, my cousin made and I said, we have to do this. Uh, and uh, so we made up our own 
and we did like five uh, editions of this thing over uh, a, a year and a half period. And it was, uh, it was great. We would, I mean, it was a job. Like we, we would get together at my house, like on, on a weekend, we would have bagels and orange juice. <laughs> we would brainstorm articles and we would go off and write them. And we had, I had a very good, a really talented friend named Lisa uh, Fox, who, uh, um, shout out to Lisa Fox. She lives up in Portland now. Uh, she was the art, she was the Terry Gilliam of our, of our group. She had art skills, really crazy art skills. Cause she could imitate any style is exactly yeah. who you want for a thing like this. So we would do, we would do what you see in, um, uh, uh, Rolling Stone or, or in, you know, no, sorry, not Rolling Stone. What am I thinking of National Lampoon? Mm-hmm. But, uh, then I stopped myself because it wasn't, it was a little bit National Lampoon, but it was far more Mad Magazine. Right. Yeah. Uh, we would do movie parodies. I forgot to mention Mad Magazine as an influence when I was young. Uh, and so, yeah, we would, we did our own little version of Mad Magazine. We did movie parodies and we put our teachers in them and we did, uh, you know, lists like 10 things, 10, 10 ways, you know, so-and-so is high, you know, (laughs) it's just like just busting our friends. Uh, and, um, and we sold it, we sold it for 35 cents. Oh, wow. And uh, we covered our printing costs and, uh, uh, it was great. And when I go to high school reunions, people still remember like you did, you guys did that thing. We called it the grit. Um, because there was a magazine that you would see in the back of comic books or in the back of, um, whatever I was reading at the time, there is a, ma- there is a magazine or was a magazine called grit. And it was a Christian publication because grit stood okay. for God reigns in truth. Okay. And we just thought that was a dumb name. <laughs> we just thought that yeah. you, if you're, if you're trying to be serious and Christian, that that name doesn't match. So we just called our thing the, the grit. Our high school was called Berkeley High School, so it was the Berkeley grit. <laughs> do, do you remember like anything specifically you wrote for that? Yeah, I did. A, I did a parody of our our official school newspaper. Our paper, the paper was it was like you know we had like a little journalism club and they made a newspaper, and it was called the Paper Cub, <laughs> and mine was called the Paper Cut. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, pretty good. <laughs> we did like I'm sure we did a star, we did a Star Wars parody that had like that was a uh, uh, that had teachers and students in there. God, I can't remember. We did we tr- we wrote like commercial parodies, like almost like you were watching Saturday Night Live, but uh, in print. So oh, we right. would do like a we would just have Lisa draw some panels, and we would do almost like a storyboard of a commercial. There was oh, a that's cool shampoo that was uh, making us laugh. There was a real shampoo that was like a fad. Probably this must have been in the early '80s that was infused with beer. Do you remember? Like there oh, used wow. to be a shampoo that had that was their selling point was they had beer in it. So wow, it's crazy. Uh, <laughs> we made fun of that uh, people drinking that stuff and oh god, I don't know, crazy. And I'll jump ahead because I, you know, that was a thing that we did um, that I always thought in our minds, in my mind especially. Uh, teachers were upset with us and the, the school was upset with us. And at one point they said, you can't sell this on school property. Uh, it's, you're, you're, you know, we would, we crossed boundaries in our little adolescent way. And we, I'm sh- we hurt teachers feelings. Like if I look, when I look at it now, I think, Oh Jesus, we were really hard on <laughs> like, what were we doing? These people who we thought were authority figures yeah. were teachers. They were good people, you know, not making much money, trying to get us into adulthood. Um, but, uh, I thought of it as because of the way teachers and authority figures were treating us over this magazine, it was like, we all sort of agreed there that this thing is illegitimate. This thing is, 
not career focused. Right. This thing is like, this is a distraction, Andy. Why are you messing with this dumb comic book? You have uh, talent as a writer. You, uh, you're in the band. You should be, you have good grades. You should be focusing on getting into college. And the whole, so my whole time I thought of this stupid thing as like a, a sort of a shameful endeavor, you know, this sort of dirty secret that we had, this thing that I eventually would have to drop if I was going to jo- become an adult and join the world. And then you flash forward to after college, when I was looking for a job, I had met someone who worked at an ad agency. Um, and I, I had majored in English and I had writing skills and I thought it would be really cool if I could get paid to write something for a living. And in the Midwest, that was about it. Uh, advertising was, was sort of Hollywood and that job really impressed me. And I thought how cool, because you get to be funny and clever and you can, this girl that I met, she was writing radio commercials and they were goofy and dialogue driven. And, and so I, I, um, worked and worked and, you know, I had an aunt who was in that business and she gave me some advice. And then I finally got an interview at this place, a small place in Detroit. And I was, I had a resume and I had some sample ads and the guy looked at my ads and he, because my aunt had told me, write sample, write, write up fake ads for, for real products and ma- just demonstrate that you know how to make a print ad. And I did it and they were all serious. They were, it was me trying to sell things. And the guy looked at it and he said, well, this is interesting, you know, you, uh, but you know, what we do here is we do more, we do more goofy comedy type stuff. And there was this amazing moment where I went, oh shoot. Like, I think he was ending the interview. Yeah. yeah. He was just saying, which I mean, it was when you think about how to how to tell someone they didn't get a job, that was a pretty good. You're always looking for information like that, and so he would basically spelled it out and said, "This isn't funny enough." Uh, But instead of me saying thank you for your time, I said, "Oh my God, me and my friends did this comedy magazine," and he he lit up and he said, "I would like to see that," and he said, "Go back home." write me uh, two radio commercials and two TV commercials and make sure they're funny and bring me that comedy magazine that you did in high school. And I did, and I got the job. Yeah. Um, it was like, it was an amazing 360 where, or 180 where I just um, uh, realized that the thing that I had, the, the, the sort of the shameful thing that I was doing that I, that comedy was illegitimate and wasn't going to be my career could actually pay my bills. Yeah. It was amazing. It's a weird thing. I, I think that's been a kind of a thorough line with a lot of the episodes I've done where people were kind of doing this thing that they weren't really that serious about yeah. and they thought it wouldn't lead to anywhere and it actually like led to a whole career and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. It was crazy. So how, how long were you working as a copywriter? I had a nice long career doing that. I worked at, a, uh, it was a little place in, in uh, uh, the suburbs of Detroit in like Troy, Michigan. It was called uh, Simon's and Michelson's Eve. They're still in business. They're great lovely people, family owned business. Um, and I did that for a, a year and a half or so. And then I, I started to set my sights a little higher. That that was a small shop and they did local, they did small clients. And I thought I, I could maybe play in bigger, bigger pond. And I got a job at a bigger place in Detroit that was called Ross Roy. And their main clients were Chrysler. Uh, but because of, at the time, this would have been late 80s, uh, Chrysler had a deal with... Chrysler was distributing Alfa Romeos for a time in the U.S. Okay. Uh, so I got to write Alfa Romeo ads, um, which were fun and snarky. And, and, you know, it's a car that, you know... It was an amazing conversation I had with uh, my uh, one of my bosses, um, Lance Aldrich, uh, who sort of off the cuff was saying, like, how these Alphas, you know, people love them, but, you know... 
people love them when they work, but they never work. <laughs> and I said, how do you think that, why do you think that happens? And he said, as far as I can tell, it's because be- when your car needs so much attention, it's easier to anthropomorphize it. Because when you talk, to, when they talk to Alfa Romeo owners in focus groups, they all talk about he doesn't like wet weather or uh, she's sick today or you know it's like it yeah. becomes easy. So when the car works, it's like a triumph of like my 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 trusted uh, Labrador is in good health right. today. It's weird. Anyway, <laughs> you asked how long I did it. So I I had a 15 year career in advertising. I did oh, wow. that SMZ and then I Ross Roy for for like three or so years and then I wanted to get to a bigger market. Um, and I had talked to a headhunter about, uh, maybe going to, I thought, you know, I should, I should be in New York, I guess, or Chicago or, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Minneapolis at the time was, do, there were a couple like really creative ad agencies there that were doing good work. And when you're in that world, you read the, there's so many awards, you know, it's a real self-congratulatory industry like Hollywood. So you get caught up in this thing of like, I want to win awards. And so I talked to a headhunter and I was like, I want to win awards. Where can I, you know, see if you can, am I good enough? You know, here's my portfolio and what can you find me? And she found me a job out here at a place called Campbell Ewald uh, that did uh, a lot of Chevy stuff uh, and um, Princess Cruise Lines and uh, God, a bank, you know, the typical bank healthcare Anyway, and and I didn't win any awards, uh, but I, I it got me to Los Angeles, uh, and I moved out here with my wife, uh, who I had met at my first job. She was the boss's daughter. Oh, um, uh, sorry, she was the boss's niece. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, uh, so yeah, it was a long career, and it wasn't until I got to Los Angeles that I started. Then I started to see when you're in the Midwest or other part of the country, you. You you don't quite understand who writes television and movies. You think of them right. as people you'll never meet, or sons and daughters of famous people, or people who just have you know just like you don't know how to get there. And then you meet them. You come out here. You meet them, and they're like, "Oh, it's just a person. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's just a person like me. They have a lot. Of, they have talent, uh, and they've had uh, uh, good opportunities and luck. I'm sure, but." Uh, they're not gods. Right. Uh, so that was when I started to get the, the thought had always been in the back of my mind. Like maybe I could do the comedy, pure comedy professionally somehow. Um, or write for, uh, comedy for sitcoms. Uh, cause in advertising, you always have a second objective. You know, you're trying to be kind of clever, but you need to sell something and someone else is giving you the assignment. They're not just saying be funny. They're right. saying like find a funny way to sell, uh, cars. Um, anyway, I'm doing a lot of the talking, but I wanted to get, I'll, I'll just give you the whole, <laughs> yeah, I'll just get no, you through. So that was like 15 years and I had yeah. been, I had a good life there. And, but then I, and then I started taking in the back of my mind, I thought maybe I could transition. And I met a guy at work who had taken a class, an improv class just for fun. And I thought I can, I should do that. Um, and, um, uh, so I t- started taking classes at the Groundlings Theater and it was terrifying and performing wasn't really my thing, although I was in school plays in high school, but never after that. And I, I'm not, a, I'm not good at performing, but I could sort of think on my feet. I could do the, the, what you're not supposed to do in improv, which was write my way through a scene. Right. Yeah. And I got called out on that a lot, but then again, I could usually find a punchline, 
uh, and so they were like a, a lot of my meetings with teachers were like, well, uh, you're not a, not a, uh, uh, like a, you're not a born performer, but, uh, you do get laughs. <laughs>, <laughs> and it was there that I just sort of made connections and met some people who were going places and people who had careers or people who had agents. And, um, uh, Will Forte was one of them actually, um, and he had just mentioned offhand, like, uh, do you ever want to, you ever think of writing for television? And I was like, at the time I was like, oh, I don't know. I mean, I got a good gig here at my at gray advertising because I was treated very well in advertising and I was making a good living and I was afraid to fail. Uh, but that conversation stuck in my mind. And then I called him at one point, like a, a year or so later. And I said, hey, he had offered to introduce me to his agent because uh, he thought I was funny. And so I said, yeah, could you show my stuff to your agent? And he showed my stuff to his agent. And then the agent never called back. Um, but it made me, th- it started me off in that direction. Right, yeah. It was another guy in the Groundlings named Jordan Black, who uh, uh, is really funny. You've seen him. Uh, uh, he was the, de- the um, Dean Spreck on Community. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he has this ongoing show called The Blacklist, where, where they do improv of movies. Or the, oh, it's called right. The Black Version where they do like the black version of a, of a movie. Um, it was Jordan who got me, who got me my first job. Uh, Cause he had, he had landed a job on a sketch comedy show called hype. It was on WB network. And he and I had written some stuff together at the groundlings mm-hmm. and um, they wanted to use, he showed them that was in his like packet of material when he got the job and he never, he was upfront about it. He said, I co-wrote this with someone and I, he asked me about it and I said, that's great. That's cool. Uh, but they wanted to put that in the show. They wanted to buy that sketch basically. And he said, I don't feel comfortable doing it. I had a co-author with this and they said, well, bring him in. And they met me and they, they hired me for four weeks, uh, basically to get access to this dumb sketch we wrote <laughs> about a hip hop chess player. Oh, nice. That's, that's funny. <laughs> it was a, like a kid, a kid from the streets who was, who was, uh, who was turning on the, you know, he was, he was, he was changing the, the game of chess right. by bringing a hip hop attitude to it, <laughs> and taunting his, his opponents. And uh, he couldn't play chess. He was terrible at chess, but he did win because mm-hmm. he threw everyone off their game. <laughs> so dumb. Once Jordan got, helped me get that job at Hype, all of a sudden, Will Forte's agent called me like the, di- the first day that I started at that job. Mm. And I, for a couple of years, I thought that was a cool coincidence until someone explained to me that no, agents know who gets hired where. A, you know, a, every agent who represents comedy writers knew that there was an opening at Hype and everyone heard, everyone was trying to get their clients on, on it and uh, everyone heard that they filled it with someone who was unrepresented. And that was when uh, this agent looked at, you know, in his garbage can and said, oh, I have a sketch packet from this yeah. guy who got this job. Uh, <laughs> What so, was what was it like to go from working at this uh, copywriting agency to now working like on a TV show? What was that jump like? It was amazing. Oh, I didn't tell you the the dumbest part of the story, uh, which is that they hired. You know, this was a show that they everyone knew was going to be canceled. They had four yeah. more episodes to make, and the reason they had an opening was because some of the upper level people had just quit in disgust. And they so I was cheap, and they brought in a, a, also a friend of mine, uh, David Susson, who's really funny, and they they. Uh, also from the Groundlings. And they just brought us in because we were way cheaper than the guy who had just quit. And they gave us his office. And uh, uh, I had said, they said, we want to hire you, but we only have four weeks left on our order, four episodes left. 
it was like two before Christmas and then two in January. And I said, that's, uh, that's, that's my dream come true. But I'm, I have to be honest, I'm nervous about quitting this good day job of mine for this really uncertain thing. And they quickly, uh, they said, you know what, you don't have to, you don't have to be, you can do both. You don't have to be here. <laughs> wow. Uh, they said, you can, if you can just be here on Monday mornings for pitch meetings, and then, uh, you know, we have a pretty loose process and then we approve uh, areas and then you go off and you can write wherever you are and then email us the script. <laughs> so I was moonlighting, basically. Um, I would go uh, to Gray Advertising at Wilshire and Fairfax in the morning. I would set my hoodie on my chair, turn on my computer, then get back in my car, go up the hill to Warner Brothers. And I was at the, I had risen to the level where uh, no one needed to know exactly where I was. Um, I was... Like I was a vice president and if, if people didn't see me in the office, they would assume he must be in casting or he must be producing something like it was, mm-hmm. uh, I had a ton of autonomy and I, t- I had a partner there who I told, I lit in on it and I said, Melissa, if um, I got this thing, I can't say no to it. I have to do it. And could you just call me? If anyone's looking for me, just call me. And so that worked for three weeks until, um, my boss was looking for me and he asked Melissa, where's Andy? And she said, oh, I don't know. And then she quickly called me. It's, it was weird enough that I had to come clean with him. Uh, I, di- I, didn't, I came 50% clean with him. I said, Peter, I'm so sorry. I should have told you. I've got some family stuff going on. Uh, I've been working from home. Uh, I should have told you. It was dumb of me, it was, which was a lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he was so nice that he got concerned about what, what is this family stuff that Andy has going on. And he kept asking and asking. And then I said, God damn it. I'm moonlighting. <laughs> I got an t- opportunity to write on a sketch TV show. It's four weeks. I thought I could get away with it. And he was the nicest guy in the world because he said, well, he thought for a second. He said, well, typically when a writer says I've been moonlighting, the next thing they say is, and I'm, st- and I'm leaving and I'm stealing your client. Uh, so I said, I'm not doing that. And he, he said, well, how, what do you need? And I said, I've got one week left. And he said, for God's sake, take vacation, you know, t- write it down as vacation time and get out of here. And then come back and work. So uh, talk about being blessed. I mean, uh, uh, that could have gone so many different ways. Right, yeah. So so you were vice president. Uh, That's a title that they hand out uh, to a lot of people in advertising. Yeah, it was like there were many, there were a dozen or so vice presidents. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, I had risen to, I was, uh, my title was associate creative director, Mm -hmm. uh, which also there were a few of us, there were like four or five of us. Uh, it meant that I had some authority over a couple of lower level copywriters and I would uh, get to go to meetings with clients and mm-hmm. be the the face of the agency. So it was good. That treated me, the, that career treated me well. And I, the advice that I try to give people when they talk about breaking in is that um, the thing that worked for me, and I don't know if it works for everyone, but is that I was never desperate. Uh, I had a day job that reliably paid my bills and I was able to pursue the writing thing um, uh, without endangering my ability to feed myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there are setbacks to that too. I mean, it, it, was a lo- it was such a long process. Between the time I decided I really wanted to try, between the time I made that phone call to Will and said, I would like to meet your agent, and then the time I got my first job, it was probably three years. Right. <laughs> so it wasn't for the faint-hearted and I tell people that too. It's like, give it, uh, it could take time. You just don't know. 
uh, so be ready, mm-hmm. uh, be ready. Cause you could have everything in place. You could have the right, you could have the talent and you could have the right material and you could have the right connections and an agent representing you. And it still could be like two years before something happens. Uh, so yeah, you got to pay the bills. <laughs> Do you use any of your, uh, the skills you learned doing copywriting in your writing today? I think the main thing that served me was that I knew how to take notes because you mm. take an awful lot of notes in advertising and you take them from people who aren't writers and who aren't funny and who don't understand how you think. And, uh, you know, it was really good training for getting like studio and network notes and, or sitting in a room with executives who are, uh, are trying to shape the material and uh, but don't ha- don't have the skill set that you have. Um but they're in charge of you and they're, and they're writing the checks. So, uh, I, yeah, I, I think it gave me patience. I think the main thing yeah. advertising gave me was patience. Like where I, I see a lot of young writers get notes or get off a notes call and be so pissed and be like, so, uh, like fuck them. And I just think this is, uh, uh, <laughs> Maybe because I'm such a beta in the first place, the youngest of three boys, not wanting to cause any trouble. Uh, I think when I get notes, it's like, this is just part of the painful thing that you do. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you know? it has to be. Yeah. <laughs> this is part of the thing. And also, I mean, my attitude in general is that uh, non-writers giving you notes, they, they're not bad and they're not wrong. I mean, they're trying to, tr- everyone's trying to picture something that doesn't exist yet. So it's like they're not in your head. The reason their notes don't make sense to you is that they're not in your head. They're not seeing what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. And if you can do a really good job of showing, of telling them, like I've never had a hard time pushing back and saying, um, I hear what you're saying, but I'm picturing this differently. Let me try it my way. Let me see if I can incorporate your thing. I mean, they want to be heard and they just want to know that you're, uh, that you're thinking about it from different angles. Right, yeah. So what was that, that first job at uh, Hype like? Um, uh, it felt so cool. I was working on the, it was on the Warner lot. And so just the idea of, I mean, I find it was Hollywood, you know, it was like, you get to drive onto a studio lot and there's a amazing back lot there. It's a really good studio, yeah. uh, Warner, just in terms of the, the visual experience. They have the huge urban street there. And there was the, ER was filmed there for like 10 years. So they had the L the elevated track. They had like the back door of the hospital and the elevated tracks. And like every day I walked around there and I just thought, I can't believe I'm here. Um, I spent more time there than, because they said, you don't have to be here, but I was like there as much as I could be. I wanted to soak it up. Um, and the, the process was, you know, it was a sinking ship and there was a, there was discord and the, you know, a lot of writers were, uh, bitching about the, the showrunners and the showrunners were unhappy and the everyone sort of, you know, the, the atmosphere in the room was sort of like, um, pissy. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know that. I didn't know whether this was uh, on the, uh, on the high end or the low end of how people behave in rooms. I just thought, well, this is Hollywood. <laughs> um, uh, and it wasn't bad. I mean, it was just a lot of grousing. I, people who do comedy are not, uh, all, are not the happiest people. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of our process. <laughs> uh, so once that show ended, you, did you just go straight back to your advertising? I job? went back to advertising, but I at that point I had a meeting with uh, Will's agent Matt Rice, who uh, is a really great guy, and I've been with him this whole time. Um, he called me in and said, "Okay, hype ended. What do you want to do?" 
And I said, well, uh, uh, I want to have Will Forte's career. At the time, Will had, um, he had written on a lot of sitcoms. And then uh, he, had, uh, he had written on Letterman. And uh, he was, and it was just before, I think he had just gotten a job on uh, Saturday Night Live as a performer. I said, well, I wouldn't mind having Will's career. And Matt laughed at me and said, no, you can't, you'd, you have to have Will's brain to have Will's career. And I was like, <laughs> okay, okay, I get it. <laughs> um, but he said... You had what at the time what I had to show was I had sketches that I had written, sketches that had been produced on hype, and sketches that I had done at the Groundlings. And um, I might talk. Uh, by the way, uh, is this a timed thing? Like, do we no, have we're, an out? Yeah, we're, we're good. We can we can meander. A yeah, little? we can meander. Okay. Uh, I hope I'm not boring. No, this is this is very interesting. Okay, cool. You'll cut it down if it, if it needs to be. <laughs> so what I had was sketches that I had written, and he I didn't have a a. Um, a script sample, like a full sitcom script sample. So Matt said, you need to write something. I want, you know, if you, you're, you want to work on sitcoms, you need to have a sitcom script. He said, I've had good luck at the time. He said, uh, the conventional wisdom was like from the like seventies and eighties and nineties was like, you go write a script, a, a spec of an existing show. And Matt was saying, I've had better luck with um, non, not specs, uh, with just the original, original scripts, original pilots. So he said, just write a pilot. Um, and he said, the important thing is, he gave me really good advice. He said, don't reinvent the wheel. <laughs> he said, just do a fucking version of Friends, but make it you. Make it your sensibility uh, and the type of humor that you like to do and the stuff that you just play to your strengths. And I said, okay, okay, I can, I, I can, and cocky advertising vice president i was like i'm gonna i know exactly what to do i but i went home and i was terrified and um i had never written anything i had written one at some point earlier i had taken a sitcom writing seminar at the uh, afi american film institute where i had written a spec ellen that was terrible (laughs) ellen um and that was the only 30 page thing i had ever written and in advertising, you rarely write anything longer than one page. Uh, and so I was terrified and I, I, uh, got, I froze, I just froze from the fear of, of trying to do this. Uh, I would sit down and try to write stuff. And then I, I would send him, he said, send me stuff in progress. Like I, Will does that all the time. Uh, but I sent him stuff and he was like, I don't get this. <laughs> and I finally, maybe it was, might've been a year later that I would, Every once in a while I would call him because I thought, this is, you're blowing it, Andy. You're blowing it. You have an agent. You have a, a legitimate Hollywood agent on the hook asking for material and you're not sending him material. And I would call him every once in a while. I would say, I, I just want you to know I'm still doing it. Uh, I'm not there yet. Uh, and he, once again, he, he said the best thing. He said, Andy, this is your career. <laughs> he yeah. said, I, I have no stake in this. I have no, I couldn't care less whether you do this or not. Um, I don't know if he said it quite that way because he does have a stake in it. He wants to make money, but he said, this is your career. You know, if you want to do it, do it. If you don't, don't, um, I won't think any less of you. Uh, and so I finally finished a script and I sent it to him and he, he said, uh, this, uh, uh, I I don't want to send this around. This isn't great. Which also oddly after a year of putting pressure on myself and thinking I suck and what have I done? And I'm not, I'm not good enough to do this. What was I thinking that I could have a, kind of career like Will Forte he's a genius I just write cat food commercials you know it's like after a year of that and then sending him that in a weird way it was a relief to hear him say that because what he was saying wasn't you suck 
he was saying, this isn't good enough. And that in an odd way, a calm came over me because I thought, oh, um, what he's saying is, it's, it's, uh, my, you know, uh, once upon a time, I didn't know how to write a commercial either. And I, I figured it out. So I'm just not there yet. And I tried harder and I, I uh, wrote something. It took me another probably six months. I put a ton of pressure on myself. Um, and wrote something and he liked it. And he said, this is good. I want to send it around. I'm going to get you some meetings. It was that simple. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, would t- it took every ounce of blood and sweat and tears because you're learning a new format. And I had to keep, I had to play games with myself where I would sit down at the keyboard and I would say, look, you're just, you're learning a new format. You wrote the grit. You wrote, you know, you do comedy. You know how to make jokes. You know the, the basic building blocks of this. You're just learning a new format and you don't know it yet. So it's okay to be bad at it. So I finally got something he liked, sent me on some meetings, nothing panned out, like a, a hiring season, a staffing season came and went, and I had some meet, I had a meeting on uh, Mad TV that didn't go anywhere, and I had a meeting on, God, I can't remember what else, who else met me, but no one hired me. And once again, I was like, oh, uh, it's pro- I guess it's not going to happen. And then mid-season, Malcolm in the Middle had a writer who had uh, been let go, which is rare. Um, uh, and they were looking to fill a spot and he got, Matt got me a meeting with them. And at the time they thought they just wanted to hire someone to write a freelance, uh, script. Uh, and they brought me in to pitch ideas and they said, well, these are okay ideas, but we've done some of them and some of them we would never do. And, uh, but we like how you think. And do you mind, uh, we have a, an episode that we're halfway through outlining, Basically, what happened was they needed someone. No one on staff wanted to write this thing over Christmas, and they were like, "Let's have some, let's just bring in some newcomer who yeah. will write it over Christmas." And their process was so tight, uh, it was so well organized that they did, they did a really really thorough outline and it was so heavily vetted that I think they thought they just sort of figured, well, it, this guy knows basically how to write, and he he just can't fuck it up too badly. Uh, so they had me write a freelance script. And they liked me enough to, to keep me around. Uh, so I got hired for that next season. And that was, that was my first real sitcom job. Uh, you mentioned when you were uh, writing the spec, the spec pilot that you were told to not reinvent the wheel. Is that like advice you'd give to uh, people today trying to write like a pilot for sample? I, I think so. Um, it, worked, it, it really worked for me because what it... Because, um, yeah, I, yes, I would, I would give that advice mm-hmm. in the sense that... Um, I don't know. There are, there's going to be someone who can break that rule and knows how to break it and, and, you know, gets everyone's attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm loath to, I'm, I'm reluctant to say, uh, just write a version of, uh, friends or, uh, always sunny. Uh, but in the sense that like what you do have to show that, you know, how to stay in, in the lane to work on a staff of a network sitcom, you have to show that, you know, uh, how, what act breaks are and how they work and, you know, what the general thing is, like how to do, like how to distinguish your characters, how to, how to write a dumb guy, how to write a a type A person. And, you know, it's like, you want to sort of know that I can do this, I can do the tropes and I can also bring some of myself to it. So yeah, it's, it's not bad advice. Then again, if you have something that's like, if you have the, if you have an idea that's like not even a sitcom that's just like but it's it's 22 minutes but it's like it'll completely reinvent television i guess try it <laughs> i mean i guess go for it 
I've seen a lot of people have shown me specs that were like things. There is the experience of looking at someone's spec and you look at it and you go, oh, well, this would never, this can't be on television. Uh, so then the, the, what you have to, you have to evaluate it based on like, is this really, really funny? <laughs> is this like really, is this mind blowingly good? Or is it just uh, a game that they're playing by breaking a rule? Right. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so you came from a, a sketch background, sketch and improv background, and you mentioned that the the pilot was kind of the first thing you wrote that was like over thirty pages. So is that uh, a crazy jump into this Malcolm in the Middle writing writers room? It, it was a crazy jump, and I the uh, the great thing about it was that was the that was the fourth season of their show, and there were some there were some gray haired guys in in the room where it was like, oh, good, it's good to see people who have you know veterans who have been around. Um, and so I thought of it as my, uh, my t- master's degree. My, basically, I, I just kept my mouth shut. Uh, there, there was good advice I got from a couple people. Um, uh, Michael Borkow pulled me aside when I was start on my first day. He said, you're about to go sit in a writer's room of a network sitcom. It can be a very weird place. And he said, do you have any questions? And I said, well, I assume that there's an unstated hierarchy and that I should just sort of uh, wait and f- try to figure things out quietly. And he said, you'll do great here. <laughs> <laughs> and then another guy, Dan Kopelman, uh, also like was talking to me about how he started in his first like few months. He was nervous about how, how he was doing. And he called his agent and he said, do they like me? Do they hate me? I don't know. And his agent like asked around and called Dan back and said, they love you. You're quiet. (laughs) (laughs) So what I learned at that job was, um, uh, it was more of a, they didn't want me to run anything. They didn't want me to prove myself. They didn't want me to do anything except, um, make them laugh as often as I could. Uh, and it didn't have to be once a day. It could be less than that. You know, it's like, just, you know, just be part of the vibe, be in the room, be funny, react to things. If you have a good idea, pitch it. If you don't, just don't, right. <laughs> you know, the, uh, <coughs> and, um, so yeah, I really just kept my mouth shut and because of what they needed me to do was just be one of them and not make waves and write good drafts, which I could do. So that was pretty good. Would you say that's like a good tactic for writers in most rooms to do, if like new writers? Yeah, since then I've been in rooms where they really value, where they really want people to speak up. Um, and um, so I guess it's not for everyone. For Every room has its own sort of different character and every showrunner wants things to go a little differently. But the best piece of advice is, I mean, don't make waves on your in your first week. You know, just sit there and be pleasant and... Um, see how they do things um unless you've been brought in to run the thing just right. like just just observe <laughs> you know <laughs> just observe uh yeah uh at the time malcolm was kind of an outlier in that it was a single cam yeah and there was a lot of multi-cams at the time what are like the differences uh for like writing those i only ever uh worked on one multi-camera and uh, so i don't know that world well, and I, uh, but what I learned on that one experience, it was a show, short-lived show on Fox called The Winner. It had Rob Corddry on it. Um, uh, and the the main thing I learned was, it, I mean, it's different, but it isn't, 
it's like funny is funny, uh, but there is something that you can do, you know, with, with single camera, you get to create humor much more with the editing and with the camera. Um, you can do sort of camera jokes, you know, the thing that's kind of a cliche, I don't love it, but I've done a ton of them and everyone does it where you do sort of like a cut to like a, a smash cut to like a character says, uh, 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 fine, I'll go to your, the, the fancy, uh, restaurant, but, uh, I'm not going to eat clams and then right. cut to, I love clams, you know? <laughs> um, so I, uh, you don't do that kind of rhythm in a, uh, multi-camera. You have to be a little, you have to be a lot more disciplined. The humor has to come from, uh, the characters from, from the words on the page, I think, um, we didn't do it well on the winter. The other thing that we learned was you always think that you're killing on show night when you have a live audience and they've been told to laugh and they're hyped up and there's a comedian who's putting everyone in a good mood and everyone is performing. The the whole audience is performing for you and you, you hear how they respond to stuff. And then when you make a change, you know, like the actors get bigger and bigger and the, the, the jokes get bawdier and bawdier and the audience is howling and you're having like, it's like being at a, at a Coke party. And then you look at the thing on TV and you realize, oh, this is, this is coming into someone's living room where they're not having that Coke party. Uh, so it has to work for them too. Mm. It has to work more for them than for the studio audience. So I think it takes a lot of discipline um, to to look at the monitor and go and, and just always, no matter what's happening on the day that you're taping it to know, like, uh, is this going to work on someone's television? It's a different thing. I don't know. It's I, my hats off to people who can do it. I'm glad that it's not a very popular format cause I'm not good at it. <laughs> uh, so you've been writing sitcoms for, for a while now. Yeah. Uh, what would you say besides kind of like the obvious, like with like streaming coming in, like what would you say like the biggest differences between then and now? Uh, it's a it's incredibly exciting time, uh, just in terms of the sheer number of places that spend money to buy content. So as a writer, you know you get into it once you get a job on a show, you know, and sort of get your head above water. Then you get into this world where uh, you are uh, um, trying to develop your own stuff. Uh, and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a road, it's a dog and pony show. You see, uh, every June, July, August, September, uh, you find a studio, you pitch them a, uh, an idea, you, uh, take it around to networks and you see all your friends having meetings with the same networks, bringing their stuff in and, and, uh, uh, you, so you you really start to it changes how you think of the business it's not like i'm working on a show it's like i'm working i'm i'm a salesman and i'm trying to sell a show uh so the exciting thing is that there's so many more it used to be when i I had a script like a a, a project that with sony that i was trying to sell and they'd be like we're gonna go everywhere with this and that meant we're gonna go to fox nbc abc and cbs with it right uh and then you would have meetings at all these networks, and then hopefully one of them would say, "We're going to pay you to write the script and develop it." So now there's a lot more, uh, but everyone is still trying to figure out the economics of it. Like a studio like Sony, I remember a, a while ago I made a pilot with them, and it didn't get to air, but they really liked it, and I really liked it. And this happens all the time where you call, then you call them up and you say, "Is there someone? This was for Fox, but Fox passed. Like, should we show it? Should we take it around?" 
And they were like, uh, this wouldn't fit on any other network. And I was like, yeah, but I was thinking CW because this feels more feminine. And uh, they said, we can't make money there. Um, so a lot of that is happening where a major studio who has to produce a show a certain way or have, have a certain budget for it to be worth their while, they aren't gonna, they're having trouble making the kind of money that you can make on the, the, uh, the streaming stuff. But that has been changing. Netflix is spending big money for, maybe not for me, but for bigger names. You know, for a for a high profile project, they would they would pay what it what it takes to make it well. Um, Amazon and Hulu. So it's very exciting. I guess I'm tap dancing a little bit because I haven't actually. I've been out of the game in terms of development for two or three years. So I haven't had that experience yet of taking stuff around to those places, but I'm excited to try. Yeah. You, you had an uh, overall deal at Sony, right? Yes. Oh, can you explain kind of what that, what that means? Yeah. Um, it's the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> um, it's when you get a job on a show, uh, maybe the, this might be the most interesting part of the interview because I'll just get into the nuts and bolts of <laughs> how the contracts work. Oh, cool. People might like that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. When you get hired on a show to be a writer on staff, uh, typically the contract says you're going to work for us for uh, as many as three years. The, the contract spells out the next three years of your life. And it, uh, it's written that uh, basically how you get paid is you get paid uh, X number of dollars for every episode produced on that series. Um so if they're making 22 episodes, you're going to get your, you know, th- th- uh, th- anywhere from th- anywhere from like five to twenty thousand dollars per episode produced. Uh, you're also going to get uh, or maybe more than that. I don't know. I don't want to get too bogged down in the numbers. Um, uh, but how you get paid is per episode produced on a project. So your services are rendered to them. Uh, you know, you're basically, you're going to work here on, um, on uh, community. This is produced by Sony. Uh, uh, we've got you for three years at our discretion. It's always at the studio's discretion. So the writer is sort of can't quit, but the studio can fire you. Now there's wiggle room there. Cause if you're truly unhappy someplace, they're not going to make you do it. Um, but it's rare that someone goes like, fuck this uh, <laughs> for the money that you're getting. You're right. like, I'll put up with it. Um, anyway, so that's a typical writer deal, uh, a staff writer deal. Uh, and those, I say staff writer, but that includes a staff writer. The titles for writers are like, uh, uh, story editor, executive story editor, co-producer, producer, supervising producer, co-executive producer. If you see those names on a TV screen, those are all writers. Those are just the writers in the room. Um, if you see something that says produced by, that's an actual producer, (laughs) um, so you get that money per episode and you get um, you also get an, uh, a payment for any of the scripts that you actually write with your name on them. And a sitcom, you're doing a lot of group writing and you're outlining in a group, but one person will go off and write a draft t- uh, typically. Or if not, they'll just say this is going to be your draft and you'll put your name on it. And that's that's a union thing. Someone, someone has to be the credited writer for a thing because that's how you get residuals. So you'll get this fee for every episode produced, no matter whether you wrote it or not. And then you'll also get an uh, extra fee for a script that you wrote, and then you'll get residuals on that particular script, et cetera, et cetera. When so, you so get something, I've always wondered about the with the script on your name and stuff, because because it, it is group group writing mm-hmm. mostly. Is there ever any like hard feelings about who gets the credit for that stuff? 
It's it's generally accepted. Now, I, not that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. It, uh, sometimes there's little nitpicks here and there. It's generally accepted when you have a room of like 10 people and you're making 22 episodes. Everyone's going to write. Everyone's going to get two. And you can look at, uh, you know, that's $20,000. Uh, the Writers Guild publishes, I'm not talking out of school here. The Writers Guild publishes their their script fee minimum. It's 22 or something thousand dollars. So everyone knows that I'm going to get, on top of my paycheck, I'm going to get 40 grand uh, for the two scripts I write this year. Uh, and so it kind of doesn't matter whether my name is on something that I had. A lot, often it'll happen that a very senior person will have a, a really strong hand in shepherding a script through the process, but the name on the script will be uh, uh, someone else. And it's just part of, like, you you accept it because you're getting paid really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're going to get your name on a script. And at the end of the day, if a show syndicates... Every script is going to be rerun, and so everyone who everyone's going to get residual checks. It, there are have been situations where, you know, some people get more episodes during a season than others, and I've seen people complain like, "I only got one script on this thing, but everyone else got two, and this other guy got three. And so, yeah, there's grousing about that, but it's never I've never seen grousing about like this was technically my script, but his name was on it or her name was on it because uh, mm-hmm. it's just everything goes around. Right, right. I don't know. I went into this money thing. You asked me about an overall deal. And why I started with the money was at a certain point. Um, while you're doing this and you're getting paid uh, to write uh, uh, per episode of, of community, you know, every episode of community, 22 episodes a year, plus the two that I write. And I'm getting a chunk of money for all that. And then at the same time, I'm also working with Sony sort of, it's generally accepted that I'm on staff of a Sony show. I have a relationship with Sony. I'm in business with Sony. So when when pilot season comes around, I'm going to go to Sony and say, uh, hey, I have this idea. Should we, let's shop this around. In fact, in your contract, it says you can't talk to other networks for development while you're working on a Sony show. I mean, other studios. So I'm basically in the Sony family, and I'm getting a chunk of money for uh, community and then a couple years in a row, I went to them and sold pilots and got a chunk of money for that. And so there's money. Sony is paying me lots of money for different things. And at a certain point, uh, it just becomes the, it, it, you get enough clout um, where your agent calls them and says, my guy is a performer for you. My guy uh, consistently sells pilots. My guy uh, t- uh, is valuable at community. Uh, why don't you, let's make this an overall deal. And the difference is, um, you, they guarantee you, uh, a chunk of money over a two year period. And they say for this huge pile of, of gold, what you're going to do for us is you're going to work on community and you're going to develop scripts. You're going to, you're going to show us, uh, uh, two or three pilot ideas per year. And it's, it sort of formalizes, uh, what has already happened. And, the first overall deal that I got was basically the cash equivalent. It was the same amount of money that I was making when I was doing it piecemeal. And I'm not exactly sure why they go for it, but I think in a way what it does is the, the advantage to the studio is that it, um, it gives them a, uh, it gives them two years of, uh, uh, of accounting certainty. So they know exactly what I'm going to cost them yeah. for the next two years which is that's valuable information for them. And it also, it locks me into their family. You know, it's a, it was the kind of thing that I was able to do. My agent was able to do when my, my three years at community were up. Mm -hmm. 
And so the phone call from him to them is basically, you're going to have to renegotiate to keep him on community. Everyone knows it's a hard job. I'm not saying he wants to leave, but, you know, people don't like that show. It's a hard, it's a hard place to work. You know, it's like that kind of negotiation. And they're like, okay, we'll pony up. And the, the wonderful advantage for a writer is that along with that, you get some perks. The, the, you're, you'll negotiate some perks, one of which was they paid, they gave me a, they paid to ha- give me an assistant, which is a funny thing because I was like, I don't really need, I don't have anything for an assistant to do. <laughs> and I, the, the part of me that hates bourgeois anything was saying like, I don't need, I'm not going to have an assistant. And then, but the other part of me was like, why should I, there's money available for someone else. Why should I deny someone the chance to have that job? So right, yeah. I called an assistant who I'd worked with before. I said, hey, uh, Kristen, I got the, a deal at Sony. They have a budget for an assistant. I don't have much to do, but you want to hang out? And she's like, yeah. <laughs> so I had an assistant. Um, uh, she did. She ab- absolutely made herself useful. She took notes on phone calls for me, and she uh, made me comfortable, and she had to, uh, proofread my scripts and did a lot of work, but... At the beginning, it was just like, hey, there's a budget and uh, they'll pay you. Uh, and also I had an... So uh, the other huge advantage to this overall deal is they take your... They say, okay, we're going to give you the, a pile of money over a two-year period. And they just pro, they just break it out by week. So you get a paycheck every week and it's steady. So all of a sudden, you go home and you say to your wife, I'm going to get a paycheck in the mail every week for two straight years, which doesn't happen when you're on staff. Yeah. You, you, the paychecks stop when, the, when you're on hiatus. Uh, and so uh, it, changes your, it just changes your lifestyle. I had, a, I, I had a, that deal at Sony for two years, and then I transitioned over to 20th. When Will uh, wanted to hire me on Last Man, uh, we were able to say, if you want him, he costs. Uh, he has an overall at Sony. You have to match that, and so they matched my deal, and and uh, uh, so I, I I was able to make that work for three straight years. And then when uh, that job at I don't work at Last Man anymore. Uh, we uh, uh, will wanted to make a change last year, and we am- very amicably parted ways. And my overall at twentieth ended, and uh, I'm back on the street. Um, <laughs> I landed on my feet. I'm working at Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is an amazing show, and I'm very happy. But it's it's interesting that in early March, when this show ends, when production ends, uh, I'm not going to have paychecks. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's going to make me a lot more. I got to work for. I got to work for my dinner again. <laughs> so when you would like, uh, what's your like your? How would you decide how to pitch a show during this overall deal? Um. Uh, you start to get a hang of uh, like what has failed in the past and what you've tried and failed in the past. So you start, you start to, you have to kind of teach yourself what network television is and how it works and, you know, what kind of things they buy. And your agent will send you a, like a spreadsheet every year. Your agent, agents compile a list of all the agencies have this and you can find it actually on um, deadline. I think you can, There, there are are websites where you can look up the list of everything that's in development currently in development, and it'll tell you like the writer, the name of the project, the studio, the network, and uh, like a paragraph or a log line that says what the what the show is about. And if you just look at that and look down that list, it it can be depressing because you see so many of the same ideas. 
Um, uh, but it also gives you, it just tells you the size and shape of the universe that you're in. So the first step is to sort of go like, well, what has been done? What's successful? What hasn't been done in a while? How can I spin this? Someone, somewhere I remember someone saying, it's a, you want to be unique, but you want to be about 15% unique. <laughs> you know, you want like 85% familiar. So it's like, okay, there have been family shows. Uh, what's my, I mean, I've really, I'm in a, some of the examples I remind, I admire the most in terms of network television. And I have to admit, I don't even watch the show, but the Goldbergs is an amazing example of it's not reinventing the wheel. And yet it has the, it has a spin on it that is perfect. Uh, you know, there's also a lot, a lot of exciting things happening with just uh, non-white people on television. So it's like blackish and fresh off the boat and uh, Dr. Ken and, you go, okay, so in terms of family shows, I can't just say, I can't just go, my crazy family, and call that a pitch. It has to be like, this is a family, and the hook to it is uh, lesbian parents, or the hook to it is, uh, it's set in the 80s, or the hook to it is, uh, God, I don't know, uh, uh, you know, adopted uh, foster kid, you know, huge number of kids, or something, whatever it right, is. yeah. And it helps if that if you can draw from an experience of your own, but I, uh, I, I never. At some point, I'll be able to pitch something that's like this. Re- this is my life. I always look at my life and go, "It's just a white guy in the suburbs." Like right. it's not what's <laughs> happening on TV right now. I right. can't pitch my own life story. Uh, but yeah. So, or you look at workplace shows and see how those work and go, "Okay, what kind of work?" There, uh, a good example was like a. a Four years ago, I thought I had an amazing idea, which was <laughs> amazing idea. Looking at the landscape and reading the lists of develop of development over the years, and all of a sudden it hit me like, oh, no one's done a cop show in a long time, a cop comedy. And I pitched this to Sony, and they were like, you're right, it's the time is right. And we got all excited, and we put it together. And mine was like about a girl cop, and we set up meetings with all the networks, and then we found out, oh, there's this uh, this other thing called Brooklyn Nine Nine that's going around. Everyone's excited about it. Andy Samberg is attached. Yeah. And uh, <coughs> and so my cop show didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, w- I, I was on the right track. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, so the process is you, you have like an inkling of an idea. You call up the, your people at the studio, your execu- development executives, who you have a very friendly relationship with. And you say, I think I want to do this thing. Uh, uh, my assistant, uh, Kristen, who I hired, who was on the Sony deal, had shown me a pilot that she wrote that um, I really liked. And I felt like this isn't quite right as is, but what I like about it is the, wor- the world that it's set in. And uh, it was set in uh, a place that's very specific to her because she grew up in Ohio. And there's a place in Lake Erie. There's a small island in Lake Erie called Put-In Bay. And it is considered the Key West of... Ohio. Yeah. And that made me laugh. And she had the show that was sort of set on put in uh, on in this sort of this sort of uh second rate uh resort for Midwesterners. Please don't at me if you love Put-in Bay. It's it's great. It's I love Put-in Bay. <laughs> if you're from Ohio, I love you. Uh, but I'm from Michigan, so we have to be natural enemies. Uh and I call. I went to Sony and said, Kristen has this area that's amazing. It's just like this look. And I just, I pitched it to them as like, we just showed them pictures of this resort. 
and it's like sunburned people who only have two months of summer and you know it's people drinking and partying and i said there's a bar on the you know it's like i don't know we don't know what the show is yet but look at how it looks it looks really cool and fun and they got excited about it and we so she and i sat down and we developed it together and and we uh sold it to fox once again and we developed it and it didn't go to pilot but um that's one way to do it is to look at tv and go like try to get an executive excited about tv they have their they have boxes and categories of shows. There's family shows. There's a thing that's so specific when you hear it, you, you want to roll your eyes, but it's called Insta Family. It's a trope that comes oh, around right. every year. There are four or five Insta Family shows. It's just like someone who didn't want kids who's stuck with raising kids or someone who uh, is a loner who uh, marries someone and, be, you know, someone who grew up in, uh, as an orphan, but now is part of a big, loud Italian family. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, in general, fish out of water is not a bad place to look and so what are ways for fish to be out of water right there was a show that the the one pilot that i ever had made it got me what got me excited about it was i was literally just thinking about friends and love triangles i for a couple years in a row i had written scripts where they kept saying what i we think it needs a love interest we think it needs a love interest and i'd roll my eyes and throw my hands up and go ugh uh (laughs) It doesn't need a love interest. But finally I sat down and I said, you know what? I'm going to just give them what they're asking for. And I started thinking about, I just started thinking about the relationships on TV that have, that had gotten me interested, that worked, that were successful. And you think of Ross and Rachel and Sam and Diane and, uh, and you think what, uh, how can I, what can I, what spice can I add to that to make it, you know, I went around and around on a thing where I was like, what can, what's interesting about Will and Grace, all of a sudden I got obsessed with Will and Grace and I thought what, what worked so well with Will and Grace was that they were a married couple, but they, but it wasn't, but they couldn't consummate so that you had all the advantages of having a married couple and the tension and, you know, the tension between a married couple, but they could also date other people and share their love lives with each other. I thought that was really interesting. And it got me on this tangent of like, what's a, What's a thing that would keep people, besides being gay, what's a thing that would keep uh, people from being romantically involved if they had everything, you know, if they had that spark and they had, they, they belong together. And then this thing popped into my head. It was, I don't know, it was just like I was remembering the movie Ghost from a long time ago and how interesting that relationship was because she started having a relationship with her dead fiance's best friend. And as soon as that happened in the movie, everyone got interested. You know, I just remember being drawn in by that as a viewer. And I thought, oh, dead fiance. Dead fiance is an obstacle. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, because if there's now there's like this tragedy that happened and there's this couple and there's this best friend. Maybe he always had a crush on her and maybe he always loved her. But he now what's he going to do? He can't tell her. It would seem so opportunistic. He's like got this Hamlet dilemma, like uh, he, uh, and also he cares about her, and uh, she needs to move on. And would would I be the best person for her? I went and called Sony. I was like so excited, and they were like they heard the word dead, and they were like, I don't know, <laughs> you know. They were like, I don't know, man. That's a hard sell. We love your enthusiasm, but that's a hard sell. And I was like, don't don't get hung up on the dead. It's not going to be sad. It's not going to be sad. You know, bewitched. Uh, uh, um, uh, what's the show? Um, uh, damn it! What was the name? What was the show with uh, 
uh, Greg and and Marsha, the uh, the Brady Bunch. Oh, Brady Bunch, yeah. Uh, you know, oh yeah, no one remembers that, but his wife was dead. You know, his <laughs> their mom was dead. It wasn't part of the show. It was just like it made him a lovable. It made him a really uh, relatable or not re- a real sympathetic character. They said, we don't think we can sell this. And then I got obsessed with it and I wrote it on spec for them. And then uh, it probably wouldn't have sold, but it just so happened that at Fox, someone had seen some comedian talking about this real tragedy that had happened to her. And they were having discussions internally about maybe there's something about a death in the family or a dead friend or a dead uh, something. And my script came across their desk at that moment and they were like, we're going to make this. Uh, I'm sad that it's not on the air, but uh, I, I, the pilot didn't come out great. But um, that was the most successful experience mm-hmm. I had. What's that process like after they they buy it and they're going to produce it for you? You're t- are you totally out of it at that point? No, 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 no. Uh, you enter a vortex of of uh, pressure and excitement and uh, hell. Yeah. It just it's the most exciting, nerve wracking thing that I've ever experienced. Um. Because you're sort of chugging along, you write a script, they like it, they're giving you notes, and then there's a day in January or February, you've turned in your final draft, and you're wait, you're getting fo- like phone calls from agents or the studio saying we haven't heard anything yet. They're supposed to make decisions. Every year, uh, each of the TV of the main networks buys. I, I've heard once they buy like sixty or so scripts, and then they make fifteen or so pilots. So you know those odds. Uh, are not great, um, and then of those pilots, they may they may order five or so to series. So the odds are spelled out. So anyway, the day happened. I was working at Community. I was sick as a dog, and I got a phone call, uh, and it was the studio. You know when you you know it's um, good news when you get on the phone and an assistant says. Please hold for Glenn and Tal and uh, Chandra and so and so. It like gives you five names. Because when everyone wants to get on the phone with you, they want to give you good news. When it's just like one person calling, it's like, yeah, uh, your, your your pilot didn't go. Mm-hmm. So I was pretty sure when they they called me, the assistant called me and said, "Please hold for these five people." I was like, "Oh, this is this phone call is the decision, and it sounds like it's good." And they said, they were like screaming and they said, Andy, you, they're buying it. They're, they're going to produce it. I'm like, that's amazing. That's amazing. And they're like, uh, enjoy today because it's going to get crazy. <laughs> and then you get a phone call from your agent who says, this is great news. Uh, I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy for you. And then you get a phone call from your lawyer who says, this is great news. I always believed in you or whatever. You get a lot of congratulations. And then immediately uh, you get an email or, or a phone call from the studio saying, First thing we got to do is find a director. Um, the order of events is you got to get a director and then you got to get a casting agent and then you've got to get a, uh, and then you've got to start casting. Um, and everyone, this happens in January and everyone is doing this at the same time. And that's what makes it crazy because every pilot is going to get shot in March. Um, and so Sony calls and says, we're going to send you a list of directors. You better study up on them, figure out who that, you know, if they're people you've worked with in the past who are at that level, let us know. And they send you the list of the people that they like and that they've worked with in the past. And then agents who don't represent me start calling me. So someone from CAA calls me and someone from uh, uh, William Morris Endeavor calls me and say, Andy, congratulations. Hey, uh, just found out the news. Uh, hope I'm not intruding. Um, I represent Meryl Streep. Uh, 
you know, I represent, uh, look, we got big names here and I'm telling you, um, I'm trying to think of a name. I'm telling you, uh, uh, Jack Nicholson has said that he might be interested in television. And you're like, oh my God, Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep in my pilot. You know, they, they just, they throw names at you. And, um, because all those, t- all those movie actors, all those huge stars have said, I might do, yeah, if you have, if the right TV project comes along, sure, shoot it my way. It's such a long shot, but you don't think that, that you know, on the day when everyone's congratulating me, it feels like my bar mitzvah. And it's just like, I'm going like, oh my God, I have the most popular pilot in town. CAA is calling me, offering me Meryl Streep. They didn't, uh, that didn't actually right, happen, right. but the, the type of names that they offered, I can't remember the names that were at the time. Anyway, so you get in this whirlwind where you're like, you have to start looking at directors' uh, names and, and start studying, looking at movies they've made or TV shows they've made or pilots they've made to decide if they match your style, who you want to meet, who you want to talk to. Uh, you start meeting with casting agents. Uh, they find that you start meeting with line producers. You have to hire people. You have to sort of tell the studio, I let, let's hire this person. And you have no experience doing that before. So you're running a show instantly and you're, you're using uh, every tool, you're using every advisor you have because you're like, I haven't done this, I don't know how to do this and they're like, we'll guide you through it but it has to be your decision. Wow. <laughs> so you're, you're responsible for pretty much for pretty much everyone. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. In a way, yes. Uh, you know, I don't write the checks but I had to tell, I, so Sony and I had to agree on who we hired. And then agents are... Uh, are selling agents are in selling mode even my agent was calling me and and saying like you should meet like uh you should meet with you should talk to this director he's very interested in your project that's the one thing that you hear when you're making a pilot is i represent so-and-so and so-and-so is very interested in your project and that's a lie <laughs> so-and-so it, it, the agent is trying to create hype right right it's very rare that some that an actor is very actors go like what should they ask their agent like what do you have that i that you think i should be in and then maybe they get excited about a script. I mean, they have to like it to do it, but it's rare that they go that they, an actor calls their agent and says, "Get me this a meeting with this writer." Like that, yeah. I don't think that happens. But the agent will make you believe like this. This person's very interested in in your project. It's because this person wants to make a pilot or whatever. So yeah, uh, I found a director I really clicked with. Um, this guy uh, Will Gluck, who's amazing and. Uh, I had met him before. He, we had the same agent, and we had met before, and we had hit it off. Um, so that was an easy decision to make. And he was a, also he had heat. He had just produced uh, uh, Easy A, which was oh, a, yeah. which made money for Sony, and then he was in the process of making um, uh, that movie about the, the Justin Timberlake and Mila Kunis were uh, friend, uh, friends oh, with benefits. benefits. Yeah. Uh, which I don't know if that did great. It, they were they were expecting it to be huge. I'm sure it made. I, I think it did well. Anyway, so that you're weighing, you're sort of weighing like who do I like? Who has a style that I think is right for this thing? And also who's hot enough to get people excited about it? Because you get wrapped up in like Deadline. dot com and what I want my pilot to be the one that they call the hot one. And it's like if if I had gotten like uh, Steven Spielberg. You know, it's like everyone would have been talking about this pilot about the dead fiance that Steve Spielberg is directing. Right. You know, I got Will Gluck and he was hot. He was hot enough. He wasn't Spielberg, but he was hot. 
Uh, and then you have a, like a real short window where you, ha- you have like two or three weeks where you've got to start casting people. And that's a frustrating process because every actor in town is just going, driving from one studio to another, doing auditions. And you see the looks on their faces. They're trying to be happy and they're trying to um, make you feel like your thing is important to them. But really, they just want to work. They're just and also you're trying to weigh like, OK, I like this person, but they are not they're sort of an unknown. They're unproven. Uh, if I could get a big name, that would help me more. Uh, but big names don't audition. <sighs> it's crazy. Crazy process. <laughs> uh, dur- during this time, are you still like working at Community? I thought I could do both for about two weeks. And I told him, I told Dan Harmon and Neil Goldman, like, I don't, th- I really don't think it's going to be that much that time uh, uh, sensitive. I like uh, casting. I can like, I, I can come and go. Like I can be, if I can just have meetings in the mornings and work here in the afternoon, because we go late at Community anyways, I'll just do the nights or whatever. And for two, after two weeks, I was like, they said, you're crazy. Uh, and also they, it helped them because they got me off their books. I was, uh, community was always running over budget. And they were like, if we can fire one writer with two episodes to go, we can save that much money. It wasn't a lot, but it, they, yeah, they were like, get out of here. Uh, so yeah, I got off the books. Uh, so, uh, why- and then they get you an off. Then Sony goes, we, uh, uh, we've got you office space on our lot. And uh, you go and you're all of a sudden you have an office on the Sony lot and you're like, it's your office mm-hmm. and there's like a, and there's room to grow. Will Gluck told me the funniest thing. He was like, this is how it goes. Like you go and they show you this office. It's amazing. It's on the studio lot. Uh, and um, uh, at first, at first it's just you and a computer, but there's a ton of other offices. And then slowly but surely it fills up. There's a casting agent. There's a producer. There's department heads, wardrobe. Uh, uh, once you get your line producer, that person brings in the department heads. You meet with them and you you sort of say yes or no. But uh, if you try, basically a guy like me, you just go to your line producer like you. This is your production. Uh, just get me the people you like who you're comfortable working with, and I'll say yes. Uh, and then the office fills up with people, and then it's a hub of activity. And then you're shooting, and then the next thing that happens is uh, some. Uh, some per, like um, uh, grounds person from the studio, some like a physical uh, d- uh, plant person or, or um, studio services person comes in and they're showing another writer around and they're like saying, this would be your office. <laughs> wow. You're like, oh yeah, it all, it, 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 they give and they take. <laughs> uh, so uh, why do you think the pilot didn't, didn't go? Um, uh, it, there were problems, th- Mostly my fault. There were problems with the story that I I couldn't figure out. Um, uh, but I had great people. Uh, um, I, I think there are two things. The, the director was great. It looked great. When we first screened it for the people at Sony, they applauded. They loved it. Um, and then they started testing it with audiences, which is this terrible, terrible process. And what they found was that uh, women liked it quite a lot. But men had no connection to it. And um, uh, they were like, you can't do... You know, it was the same year that New Girl was developed. Those were the two sort of single camera pilots that Fox was looking at. Mine and New Girl. And New Girl had an appeal for men that mine didn't. Mm. Uh, in my show, it's so dumb. In my show, there was like a... There was a subplot that was like a... a 
a girl coming out as as gay uh, who wasn't the lead, uh, or she was sort of experimenting. She was like, I might be gay, and she was like, she wanted to. She sort of fell for this other woman, and they had a date, an awkward date, and they they almost kissed, but then they couldn't. And you see, when you're watching a focus group, you see dials. Everyone watching has a dial, and they turn it to the right if they like it, and they turn it to the left if they don't like it. So minute by minute, second by second, you see their their appreciation of what's on the screen. That's insane. It's a terrible way to judge a show. But what we saw is so dumb. What we saw was that uh, as the lesbian scene was playing out, the men's dials were going way up. And then when they decided not to kiss, the men were like, fuck this. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. People are like dogs. You know what? It, it, I, here's advice I'll give anyone making a pilot. Make a good pilot and make it your story and make it great. Uh, but if, if you want to help yourself in the testing process, if there's any way without selling out your soul, if there's any way to start your show with a like an action sequence of two people fucking on the hood of a car, do that because everyone will turn their dials up. So then when they start turning them down, they're starting from like a hundred. Right, right. <laughs> We're just like dogs. We like we like movement and sex. We like, you know, bright colors, uh, action, movement, and sex. <laughs> uh, let's talk about community. So, okay. Uh... <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, how did you get hired for Community? <clears throat> I had worked on, uh, I had a couple lean years after Malcolm in the Middle. There was a writer's strike that didn't help. And then I got this job on late in the, se- the, the staffing season that came and went. I had called my agent and I thought I was coming off a hot show, a, a hit show, and everyone would, would hire me. And I said, I love this show. By the way, I love this show, How I Met Your Mother. I think that I think I'd be a great fit for that. And I thought it would be a shoe in And I met those guys who were really nice, but I didn't get that job. And then I had a lot of meetings that year and nothing was coming through. And then finally, I got this job on the winner. And sadly, they only made six episodes and got canceled. Um, And then there was another thing. And then the strike happened, I think, or the strike might have been before that. I can't remember. Um, It was looking very lean for me. And I I did the winner. And then I did another show that was called Single with Parents that was an ABC show. It was famously canceled before it went into production. Oh, wow. Uh, it was a great uh, show. Kristen Newman created it. And my friend Matthew Carlson, who I knew from Malcolm in the Middle, has been my champion for much of my early career. Like, I, there's there's a room in my house that I named after him because he, he's gotten me three jobs. Uh, and the show had Alyssa Milano and uh, Bo Bridges. It was a... Oh, wow. This is another um, trope in the when you look at the development slate. It's um, uh, adult with uh, adult child of crazy parents. Mm. The show was called Single with Parents, and it was like her, you know, a grown ass woman, thirty years old, trying to navigate dating, but her parents were divorced, and they were both crazy, and they were in her house all the time. Everybody loves Raymond, but with a single girl, it was great. Uh, but it uh, the network changed their mind about it before we even went into production. Anyway, so and I had developed. Uh, I had an in at Nickelodeon. I had developed a cartoon for them that was a really cool project based on these books. There are, there are kids' books that are incredibly popular in England and everywhere in the world except here. They're called Mr. Gum, written by this really funny guy. The Nickelodeon showed me these books, and they said, there's this British guy who writes these. Um, 
we want to develop it and um but we want to meet meet him and i like i fell in love with the books and i i try i lobbied so hard to get that job and then he and i are really good friends now we we hit it off so well that we developed this thing together our pilot didn't go blah 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 so i was sort of looking at uh uh there was another show at nickelodeon that i had helped out on they had asked me to do some punch up on this show that ended up being a really successful show for them that was called super ninjas and I sort of worked on the pilot script before they, um, uh, while they were just developing it. And uh, it's, um, Nickelodeon call. Uh, one day I was on, uh, I was back home in Detroit for a family thing. <clears throat> and my agent called, he said, Nickelodeon wants to produce that Super Ninjas pilot and they want you to be involved. They want to make a deal with you as a, as an executive producer, as like a showrunner, because the people who created it hadn't uh, hadn't run anything before. Uh, I had more network experience or whatever, um, and I was like, "That's that's great." Uh, and um, uh, I like Nickelodeon, and we we should do this. And he said, "Well, hang on a second, because there's an opening at Community, and I feel like um, it's a great fit for you, and I think I can get you there." Uh, and he he said they want or actually I think he said they want to meet you. I didn't know that Matt, my agent, he represented uh, uh, mo- many of the people who worked on Community. So that's a thing that happens that's sort of like we don't talk about a lot. But there is a lot of family sort of stuff that happens where if your agent is tight with a showrunner or tight with uh, the higher ups at a show, you have a better chance at getting that show. And there's a flip side to that, which is like if your agent has nothing to do with a show even if you're even if you're an amazing fit for them your agent doesn't have quite as much clout and their agent is going to be pushing for their people right. etc anyway so matt had a strong hunch that i could get this job at community they had seen this they had seen the dead fiance pilot that i wrote which was um, oh that fia- that dead fiance pilot was just a spec at that point it hadn't been produced mm-hmm. anyway I said, well, but the um, the Nickelodeon thing is an offer, and the um, the community thing is just a meeting. And it wasn't Nickelodeon was an offer just to supervise a pilot, but it, in hopes that it would go to series and I would work there. And he said, Andy, this is he's my concierge. He's like really good. He's not just my agent. That's why I'll never leave him. He said, Andy, there will come a day when you can only work at Nickelodeon. <laughs> 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 and. Um, I said, good point. Uh, And uh, so uh, I went and met, I actually cut my trip. I said, I'm in Detroit. And he said, why did you leave town during staffing season? (laughs) I was like, it's a bar mitzvah. I couldn't, he he said, can you come back early? Um, And I did, I came home a day early and they met me on a Sunday. Um, uh, and I sat down with Neil Goldman and Garrett Donovan and Dan Harmon and uh, Russ Krasnov. And it was, I mean, we hit it off. I didn't have any coaching. A lot of times I'll ask my agent and say, like, what should I know going into this meeting? And he'll say, tell me something about their personality. or. But I don't even think I had any coaching other than he said, Dan's a weirdo. Uh, <laughs> just, you know, just don't piss him off or whatever. I, in hindsight, why why I think I got that job was because of who I am, personality wise. I just clicked with Dan. Um, uh, 
he he um, he doesn't feel comfortable around uh, very successful people. <laughs> he doesn't feel comfortable around hot shots or anyone who seems like they were cool in grade school or high school. Anyone who seems like they were cool uh, is a that, that's a that's sort of like a. Maybe I'm talking out of school here, but it seems like, you know, Dan's a nerd. You listen to his podcast. Mm-hmm. He's a nerd. He's a champion of nerds. He's an outsider. He likes outsiders. You know, he has this great relationship with this Spencer guy. I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with the Harmon in that world, but it's like he likes he likes us, people like us. And that's the way maybe I don't seem like that to other people, but that's how I feel inside. Like an outsider, like a kid doing a, a shameful comedy zine in high school, not being serious about his career blah, blah. And so I think the vibe, you know, probably on a, um, on, on a uh, pheromonal level, I put off a vibe, especially with other men, I put off a vibe that says, I will never challenge you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I learned being a classic beta male that like, I, I will never, uh, I will never assert dominance over another male. <laughs> Uh, and almost never, like I'll never do it on, 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 with another person. Like I, I don't, I don't boss women around either. Uh, I'm like here to make people happy. I'm Radar O'Reilly from Mash, and I think he just sort of sensed that we we got along, and he liked my script. I don't think he read it actually. He read maybe five pages of it, but yeah. there were uh, jokes on the first five pages that he liked, and so I got that job. What, what was that uh, writer's room like? Uh, I th- you know I think of it as the greatest. It's such a good talk. I know we've gone on 90 minutes. Can we go longer? <laughs> yeah, we can go, yeah. All right. I'm so sorry. I apologize to the listeners. I hope this is... No, I bet they're going to love this. Yeah, it's great. Okay. All right. I think of it as the greatest and hardest job that I've had. Uh, and I think most of the people who work there feel the same way. You know, you're in a bunker with people. It's. I love Dan Harmon, and I... Um, people... Everyone said this is a... Oh boy, that's a shit room. I mean, that's a hard room, boy. I mean, that the people, those people are slaves. And um, I came out of it thinking. I mean, my my impression of it is yes, it was hard, but I never. Um, I love Dan and hate his process, basically, and I think mm. that was the consensus. Was uh, we love the guy, love the work that he does. Uh, just wish it was easier to fucking do that. And I think it would be, you know, he has his demons. He's, he's not shy about them. You can listen to his podcast and he'll tell you how much he drinks and uh, uh, how unfocused he is. And uh, so it was like, there's probably a part of it that has to do with codependence. <laughs> um, but I've just felt like that when Matt sent me DVDs of season one of Community, I hadn't been watching it. And I, w- I watched the whole season and everything I saw was like, this is so cool. Like, this is so what I want to do. If I could be considered for this job, I would be so honored. Like, it just, it plugged into my head in the right way. It's just, the was the right balance of meta and silly and Monty Python-ish and sci-fi. And it was just like what I wanted to do. So the whole time I was there, after every season... It would be exhausting and I wouldn't see my wife. My daughter was just like five years old when it started. It was really hard on us. And there were times when I would stay all night. The first time we had an all-nighter there, I, I drove home at like five in the morning because I didn't want my daughter thinking that that could be a thing that happens. Like I didn't want mm-hmm. her thinking that daddy could go to work one day and still be there. Like right. I, I just didn't want her thinking that that's what a job was. It seemed so awful to me. So I drove home to be there for breakfast and pretend that I had slept there. Oh, wow. 
um, and then I never did that again because it was just like, it was dangerous for me to drive home being that tired. Um, uh, but I did have talks with, I remember having talks with my daughter saying like, you know, when you get older and you have a job, it's not going to be this. <laughs> wow. This is a very weird job that right. I have and it's not going to be like this forever. And the conversation I would have with my wife after every season, I would be exhausted and I would say, I don't know if I can do another year of it. And she would say, you think? I mean, yes, of course you're not doing another year of it. And then hiatus would come and go, and I would look at the shows on the air, and I would say, I would have a look on my face, and I would say, Kathy, here's the thing. There's, it's not going to last forever, and this is the funnest show there is. Do you mind if I did another year of it? And she'd be <laughs> like, you know, uh, she wasn't going to say no. She loves me. <laughs> uh, but you're, you asked what the room was like. It was, um, uh, it, there's, one th- there's one thing that happens, and this was true at Malcolm in the Middle as well. Uh, the guy at the top was a 600-pound uh, gorilla. And, you know, in the sense that it's my way or the highway, we're doing what I want. We're not going to do anything that doesn't make me happy. Uh, I'm that way with the studio as well as with the writers. And... There's a good thing that happens when a person, when the person in charge, when the showrunner is that um, big, uh, that guarantees that there are no politics on on the staff. Right. Like it's it's basically us and him. So we're all to, we're all together in a foxhole, and we're just trying to manage Dan uh, and make him happy and get him what he wants because we believe in what he's doing. And there were people, you know, and every year there, there were people who would leave. And we'd the, you know the conversations we have with each other at the end of a community season were like. You got another one in you? And I'm like, no way, I'm done. And it's like, I don't know, I think I might just do... You know what, I got... You did two years, I can do two years. I remember um, uh, Carrie Dornetto and Hillary Winston and uh, Emily Cutler and Andrew Guest. Those were four people who left. My first year of Community was season two, and those four people had had their fill after two years of it. And I remember talking to each of them and them going like, yeah, I'd, same thing. Like I love Dan, just can't do it. I just can't do it. It's exhausting and it's killing me. And I would say, well, you did, I told them all like you did two years. I'm going to do two years. And I'd sit another year. And then at the end of the second year, it was like, well, I don't like rocking boats and I have a third year on my contract and I'm just going to do them. I'm just going to finish my contract. <laughs> so I did that. And then the fourth year, of course, Dan was fired and, uh, wait a minute, two, three, four. Oh, no, I'm sorry. The fourth season was my third year. So I I had to stay there. Um, There were some people who said, no, I don't want to do it if Dan's not here. Uh, But Sony was putting a lot of pressure on me. And uh, um, my agent was saying, this will be a good thing for you. Stay and work. Stay and do community. Isn't this kind of what you wanted? I mean, it's the same show, but it's not. It's without Dan. And I, we all had our reservations. And as it turned out, fourth, fourth season of community was was sketchy. Uh, we didn't do as good of a job as Dan did, uh, but it was a good thing for my career. So you mentioned the fourth the fourth season. Yeah. Uh, so you just think it was just the absence of Dan that that really made that happen? Yeah, you can't do it. I don't think you could do that show without Dan. And I think the mistake that we made um, was trying to make it. To, trying to make the show that he was making. And we would have been better served if we had just said, this is a different show. This is the same characters, but this is the show's not going to have that same vibe. 
we should have just gone off and done our own thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would have been better. We would have piss- then again, we couldn't win. We would have pissed off the diehard. We would have pissed off the fans no matter what. But we were bad at imitating Dan. That that we know for sure. <laughs> uh, you wrote a Medium article about uh, how community cured you of a sh- oh, yeah. shit writing syndrome. <laughs> can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I just I have to. I've, I'm a little ashamed of it in the sense that I I think I, part of. I, clearly, part of the reason I wrote it was just to get clicks uh, by mentioning Dan Harmon's name and and being part of that world. <laughs> so I'm embarrassed that I did it. But there, and and also the lesson. Some people have said the the lesson that I teach in there is not exactly le- you know it's not. I don't give any great advice in there. It's more just like a. Uh, but it, the, the main advice that I, the, I guess the why I wrote it and the thing that it impressed me was that. Um, he, you know, we, I talked about, I said his process was exhausting and that things would happen at two in the morning. Um, but the main reason, well, the main reason it was like that was because he uh, has his demons and drinks a lot and can't focus. But the second reason that happened was because he just didn't accept, he just didn't stop until he loved it. And that was something I had never done in my career. Like I'd always sort of stopped when it was good enough or stopped when it was like, uh, the, this is what they want. Cause I'm really good at giving people what they want, but I don't really have an inner, I don't, I'm, I'm less good at having like what I want, a, 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 a force in me that says I have to get this on the page my way. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some ways I miss the comforting world of advertising where they give you an assignment and they say, this is what we, this is what needs to happen when this commercial runs, you know, X number of people need to see it and X number of people need to think this way about this product at the end of it. And I'm like, I can fill those boxes uh, it's harder to be like, what, well, what do you want to do? How do you want to entertain people? I've always struggled with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the thing that impressed me. I've, I've learned from everyone that I've worked with and even the bad experiences have been so educational. And I just feel like, uh, the thing, one of the main things I got from Dan was just like, um, uh, and I, I suppose, I don't know if this works for everyone. I mean, I, in the article, I made it seem like anyone can be a great writer if they just work hard. Uh, and it's probably not true. But if you have the main ingredients, um, you can you can always do better work by pushing yourself harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just we usually don't, <laughs> you know. <laughs> then again, and I say this, and it's clear that I've drank, I've drunk the Kool-Aid of community because I know people who didn't love that show and they, they'll hear this and they'll go like, what, what was so special about that show? I mean, it was, at the end of the day, it was, it was uh, cool characters doing jokes. Um, but I felt like when I was in it, uh, I'll always think of it as like a kind of a magical show, that there was something amazing about how it traversed reality and fantasy and how those people felt so real. Like the, the, for the people who loved that show, uh, those characters felt completely real and completely realized. Uh, and for the people who don't love it, they're like, it's the show fucking did, you know, just fucking did claymation for no reason. <laughs> and I'm like, no, it wasn't for no reason. It was because Abed was seeing the world in that, through that lens. <laughs> like, Andy, calm down. <laughs> uh, so after Community, you worked on Last Man on Earth. Yes. Uh, yes, the Community finally ended. I had done, lived through season four and then lived through season five. Which was um, uh, Dan came back, and uh, there was a new, uh, almost a whole new staff uh, uh, of people I really loved. Um, but my 
deal, my overall deal at Sony was ending. And I had, so I had a meeting with uh, my agent and I said, I, every once in a while I have this meeting where I go like, am I done? Like, am, have I aged out? Am I too, <laughs> am I too old for this business? Uh, am I too last year's news? Does no one want to hire me anymore? Please tell me when I'm done. Uh, so I can try to get a job at Best Buy on the, <laughs> on the Geek Squad. Um, and he said, well, your buddy, Will Forte, just sold this thing to Fox. Uh, you should call him. And I hadn't, Will wasn't exactly my buddy, but we had thought highly of each other and he helped, helped me get my start. I hadn't talked to him in years. Um, and I said to Matt, like, I think I have an old email address of his. This can't be right. It's at Earthlink. And Matt said, no, that's his email. <laughs> so I emailed Will and I said, uh, hey, I just saw this. Matt snuck me the script of your pilot and I'm crazy about it. It's a, it really was astonishingly good. And I said, I don't, you know, this is very forward of me, but I'm available. If, if there's anything I can do to help out, I would love to. And then he, we had breakfast and uh, we hadn't seen each other in forever. So it was a nice reunion. And he just said, uh, I had, you know, I think Matt had probably talked me up to him and he will had respected me. And I had a decent reputation at that point. I had done, I, you know, I had done five years on a really unique, amazing hit show or not hit show, but a great show called community. And so Will was just like, Hey, yeah, if you want this job, it's yours. And I was brought in as a, a co-executive producer, but it was really understood that I was, since Will had never run a show before, and I had kind of, I had been instrumental enough in season four of Community that I had, I could call myself a showrunner, or I was ready for that transition. So it was kind of understood that I would be the, sort of the head writer of Last Man. So I was, there. Will only hired his friends, Great Room, Emily Spivey, Liz Kikowski, uh, Tim McAuliffe, uh, Eric Durbin, John Solomon, Dave Noel, these are all people who Will had worked with either at SNL or, or had been friends with since college. Uh, and so it was all friends of Will who worked there. Um, and uh, um, t- uh, I sure hope I didn't leave a name off that list. Matt Marshall, <laughs> Kira uh, Kalush. Uh, uh, anyway, if I left your name off, email me. <laughs> Uh, but it was so it was a great room, and everyone was very senior. And uh, Emily and Liz had worked on great shows, and and uh, uh, John had uh, was more of a director, but he had co- he had uh, directed a lot of stuff at SNL, um, and uh, so everyone knew what they were doing. Uh, but I was the one who would take the meetings with the studio and the network, and sort of be the point person. And then uh, uh, it was just it was great. Will also has a frustrating. Um, uh, um, process, nothing like Dan Harmon's, but some similarity in that he doesn't stop until he until he loves it, and he'll he'll go as long as it takes. Um, but it's also he just has a real. He talks about this. He's kind of he's a little bit OCD, and he's a uh, he just um, his brain works in a very specific way that it's um, I don't want to say spectrum me, but it's a little bit. He, he it's like he he sort of he can hyper focus on one thing at a time. Um, and also where he draws comedy from is it's something so unique. I've never seen other, I don't do it that way. Other people, like the people you meet in sitcom rooms, we all sort of know how to make jokes with dumb characters or hyper characters or like, we all sort of know how to do the tropes and we try not to 
we try to disguise them enough so that it looks unique, but Will finds comedy in things that other people don't find comedy in. So uh, we all basically just um, tried to catch up with Will. Um, and then in the second season, he formalized the, the uh, arrangement by making me an executive producer, uh, which was really nice. And I got a, uh, uh, I got a lot of, it, it was great for my ego. Because <laughs> uh, all of a sudden I could tell people, oh, this amazing thing happened in the second season of Last Man. I, fuck. All right, we're going to wrap it up pretty soon. This is a <laughs> dumb Hollywood story. Uh, a lot of what happens socially in in LA is uh, through children, through your children. When Once you have kids and they oh, start going okay. to school, you meet other people. I met this guy, John Hober. His kid uh, goes to school with my daughter and um, we carpooled with them. And I noticed that John... Uh, always had John loved Porsches. He always had Porsches, and uh, I saw him admiring uh, his car one day. He's a screenwriter, uh, and uh, he said, "You want me to put you on the list?" And I said, "Yeah, the the list of people who get free Porsches." Yeah, sure. And he said, "No, seriously, there's a list." And I said, "What the fuck are you talking about?" And he said, "Porsche has a guy whose job is to." just lend out cars to Hollywood people in hopes that they will use their cars in as product placement, you know, as uh, prop cars in, in movies. Wow. They have these picture cars that are great and that when they're not being shot, they just give them to writers and directors and actors. <laughs> and I was like, fuck yeah, put me on this. So I got to drive this amazing uh, Carrera, uh, Carrera four turbo for two weeks. <laughs> and that guy has not called back. Like I begged him to get me more Porsches. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, but it was because I was a showrunner of Last Man on Earth. <laughs> and we did, we never put a Porsche in our show. That's probably why he didn't call me back. But I, I emailed him last year and I said, they, okay, I didn't have anything to do with this, but they did. They told me they did use a Porsche this season and he still didn't email me back. I'm, I'm, I'm not getting any more Porsches. Uh, was that a difficult show to like break story on? Because like anything could happen. Yes and no. Uh, one thing that made it less difficult was that it was sequential. Right, um, yeah. So unlike other sitcoms, you don't sit with a blank page and go like, what should happen this week? Like, there were always bills to pay in the sense that like, well, we just ended last episode with the appearance of a crazed uh, madman who wants to kill them. So that's what this next episode is going to be about. Right, yeah. Uh, so in terms of finding story areas, it wasn't hard at all. It was it was relatively easy. Um in terms of uh, finding our voice and making it work with the premise, there was a real learning curve because there was no other show like it. There was nothing to compare it to. So we could, like there were a lot of discussions early on, like we should do a flashback. In the pilot script, Will had written a couple flashbacks and then and we shot them and then he decided he didn't want to use them. And there were a lot of people, we had uh, some heated discussion in the room of like, why, there's such a great tool. And if the show is just going to be this empty world, I mean, d we're going to need flashbacks. We're going to need comedy. We're going to need to cut to what things were like. And uh, he said, yeah, but there's something about the emptiness of the world that I like. And I, we couldn't argue with that. I, I mean, he had to assert his vision and his vision was, this sort of sad, I see Will as sort of cha Chaplin-esque. I think he's really good with, with silent stuff and physical stuff. And he's a lot like that uh, Chaplin character, that tramp character. Like he's just like, he, he doesn't get the girl. He's a goofball. He tries, you know, he, uh, uh, bad shit happens to him. Mm -hmm. um, and there's something that Will understood 
about the feel of the show that was more important than the stories we told. And he was like, flashbacks hurt the feel. Uh, we've since then we've done a few and you could either see that as a, as a horrible failure of our, of our promise to ourselves, <laughs> uh, or, uh, as a, a very, uh, uh, a very genius like a restraint shown where we we do flashbacks limited in a limited way <laughs> i don't know uh so now you work at uh brooklyn 99 yes uh, how'd you get that job it was uh i just went on a lot of meetings after uh uh last man ended and will so politely said i want to make some changes and i was like god damn it I, uh <laughs> why am I being let go by the nicest person in the world? <laughs> uh, but I, I, and I understood the changes he wanted to make and I, they made sense to me. That was the other thing. It was like, yeah, you should, you, also my deal was up and I was expensive and he was like, I want to bring in some people. I want to see some fresh people and, and you're, uh, I was very expensive and I, it totally made sense. So after that, I, uh, agent sent me on lots of meetings. It was full on staffing season. I read all the pilots. I got yelled at by him once because I was going into a meeting and I, I hadn't read the pilot <laughs> and uh, he said, get your head in the game. I was like, I'm, re- I'm in the car. I'm gonna, I- I've got 15 minutes when I park. I'll read it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I skimmed the pilot and uh, made a decent impression. But anyway, um, one of the meetings was uh, Dan Gore, who created Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And he, he had, luckily, this is how it happened. This is how it happens for me these days. And I'm blessed. But it's that he sort of had some familiarity with me. He knew of me. We had a lot of friends in common. Emily Spivey had worked with him on uh, Parks and Recreation, and she uh, worked with me on Last Man, and she and I went back. We we were friends all the way from the Groundlings. She was another one. Was in the, by the way, in this Groundlings cast, when I was in the Sunday Company, it was Will Forte, Maya Rudolph, Cheryl Hines, Jim Rash, uh, Rachel Harris, and then a bunch of other people like me who have gone on to have careers but not famous. Wow. It was an amazing group yeah. of people. Um, and Emily Spivey was one of those. So anyway, Dan and I sort of were in the same world but had never met. And he, uh, uh, and it, we have the same agent. So Matt put in a good word, said, you should get this guy. Dan met with me. He had uh, seen a thing. I forgot to mention, and this may be a good way to wrap it up. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But anyway, we, we sat down to breakfast. He met me at a restaurant. We had breakfast. And... Um, we just bonded immediately. We made each other laugh. He he's such a he's like so nice and such an interesting. He's like a curate. He's he would be a good. He seems like a sort of a Dick Cavett type because he just is genuinely <laughs> interested in people. Yeah. Like when he meets you, he just wants to know your deal and, and in a non-threatening way wants to know everything about you. And he had read like a, my Wikipedia page. Like he knew stuff about me. <laughs> I was so flattered. And uh, he wanted to see my. Wa- I had I had made a. A couple of years earlier, I had decided, I want to get a watch. I want to get a good watch. I earned it. I want, to, I want to be a watch person. And I studied it, and I bought myself a watch. And then he wanted to see my watch, and he had gone through the same journey at the exact same time. He was like, I'm, I became a watch person, too. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, and then the call was, um, Matt called me and said, they, yeah, he, he, uh, he, Dan followed up with Emily and other people who knew me and asked about me, and they all put in a good word. I think they maybe oversold me, to be honest. <laughs> uh, but they all told him, yes, Andy's good. And um, uh, so then Matt called and said, yeah, they want to hire you. And I, at the time, I was like, I'm not... Here's the thing. I, I've, I haven't watched the show. I like it. 
uh, I respect it, but I, I haven't watched it. And now that I'm watching a few episodes, I don't know if I can write it. Like there's a, there's a, there's a style that's like Parks and Rec and Brooklyn Nine-Nine and, and, um, Office and Good Place. Like there's that, those are sort of in a, in a similar category. And I've never felt sure that I could write that kind of, that way. I don't know why, uh, it's, uh, but anyway, so I had some doubts about whether I could do the job. And then, and once again, Matt, my concierge, like speaking as my big brother said, like, you're, <laughs> this is a coveted job. Like, why just say yes. I mean, <laughs> like, don't think about it, learn how to do it. So I took the job and it's been great. And I love working there and I hope you get another season. Uh, what would you like to be doing next? Uh, I it definitely is because I am getting a little older. I'm noticing that the people in the rooms that I work with are now now feel like almost like the references that I bring to it from my childhood. Uh, they weren't born when that happened. You know, the references <laughs> that they bring to it from their childhood. I was in college, so I'm definitely feeling like I am getting sort of closer to that moment where it becomes Nickelodeon or or. I hate to shit on Nickelodeon. It's, they do great work there, and I have friends who work on on kids shows. So I'm not. I it, I am shitting on it. Whatever. <laughs> so, I, but yeah. So my I have a fear. I have a general fear that every TV writer has, which is like, I may be getting. I may be aging out soon, and I don't want to. I love it. I have energy and enthusiasm for it. Unlike you know, I'm not burned out, but I may be perceived as someone who's expensive and maybe not worth it. And so uh, my the next thing I the the mountain that I haven't climbed yet is I haven't gotten a show on the air. And so, you know, I, I have to try. Um, and I kind of crapped out in this development season too. Like I had asked them, they didn't want to let, let me develop. Uh, this is uh, Brooklyn nine is produced by universal. And when I was, I told Matt, like I, I, yes, I'll take the job. Absolutely. But it's very important to me that I develop. Cause I just, I've been out of the game for a while. And the last thing I did was that pilot that didn't go. And I just like, I got it. I, I have to make my mark. And he said, okay, they'll give you permission to develop. And then I didn't this year. I was too busy at Brooklyn Nine-Nine and I, I didn't get anything going. So I have a couple irons on the fire now that are sort of not networky ideas uh, that I'm working with my friends at Lord & Miller who produced Last Man. I, I love those executives um, and we have a great relationship and uh, we've stayed in touch. And so I've, I've pitched something to them that they that we are all very excited about, but we want to get, we want to try to talk to actors before we go to uh, networks with it. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we're going to wrap up uh, with you giving your thoughts on a sketch idea I have. This okay. Is, this is the, the segment we do at the end here. Okay, what is it? Lay it <laughs> okay. on Okay, so I was watching The Killing, like the old AMC show. Yeah. Uh, and the weather's always really shitty. It's like, <laughs> right. it's like in Seattle, it's always yeah, like raining rained. or it's like, snow- yeah. I think it was snowing in a couple episodes. Right. Uh, so I thought of a sketch where a, a lead detective keeps pushing off an investigation because it's like bad, at, cold outside. Yes. So it's like uh, <laughs> witnesses describe the murder and like his partner's asking like good questions. Uh, but the lead detective just like was always like, but what's it, what's it like outside right now? And then like tries to push it off. Yeah. So that's, yeah. Uh, I love that sketch. Cool. I don't know. It, it doesn't feel quite, I, I don't know if I, I don't know how it would do. Mm. It does feel like it needs a, I love the idea. I just love him going, uh, uh, just like sort of pulling back the curtain and looking outside. They're like, to me, it's sort of like someone going, like, we need to check that crime scene. And he's like, yeah, I don't know. Could, could it be tomorrow? Yeah. I think it's like, what, is a, what does the forecast say? I think like the, I think we might get maybe partly sunny tomorrow. 
because I don't want it. Look at this. Look at this. I'm not going out in this. Or yeah. like the, but all the evidence is washing down the street. He's like, right. yeah, well, maybe they should have had, they should have been smarter about what evidence they leave then. <laughs> yeah. If they want me to discover them. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that. <laughs> all right. Awesome. Uh, anything you want to plug? Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Last Man on Earth. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, no, just uh, just keep watching uh, comedy. We're in a golden age of television. Yeah. Uh, I hope it doesn't stop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. You got me to talk all, uh, you got me to talk a ton and I loved it. Oh, it was great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of On Comedy Writing. I want to thank Nick Doss for supplying the sweet tunes, Zachary Glassman for giving us the awesome logo, and Boardwalk Audio for hosting us. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and like and follow On Comedy Writing on Facebook and Twitter. See you next week. Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit boardwalkaudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.